Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on in today's interview, which begins right now. I am joined by Nick Reese, uh, VP of Macro Research at Merck Investments. Nick, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Great to be with you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Nick, tell the audience a little bit about your background. So you do investment strategy, macro research. What are you, are you looking at? The business cycle? Are you looking at valuation? Sort of everything. What what has to happen for you to sort of change your mind on, on change your outlook? Sure. Yeah. So I put out, as you know, a monthly report on the U.S. business cycle and a monthly report on the equity market. And two of the things that I'm looking to assess there on an ongoing basis is what is the risk of recession over sort of a six month forward looking period. And with respect to the market, you know, as we've been in this secular bull market, you know, what are the chances that that's potentially coming to an end? And as we've been making new bull market highs, are those highs consistent with past major market tops or not? And so I'm not really looking to to make a call around a a, a correction, a 10 to 20 percent correction. I'm really looking to make um, potentially defensive shifts around major recession bear markets like we had in the early 2000s, like we had during the global financial crisis and great recession. And sometimes, of course, the market's going to be trading pretty much in line with the fundamentals. And if there's not a material mispricing there, then there may not be much action to take. So in other words, you can't really look at fundamentals in a vacuum. You have to look at fundamentals always relative to price. And what do you think typically causes a severe market correction? Is it, let's say, door number one, which is a recession in the real economy, door number two, a pricking of an asset bubble, or door number three, other? So what typically causes a market correction? And then what has been the culprit of the drawdowns we've seen this year? With the S&P down, oh, I don't know, 21%, something like that. In terms of corrections, it's hard to say. Corrections, which are typically defined as 10 to 20% drawdowns, tend to be somewhat well, very difficult to time, I would say. And there's always a narrative that's assigned after the fact. So you're never going to get a correction that sort of, I mean, to me, they sort of come out of nowhere, but there's always a narrative associated with them. Nobody's ever going to say, oh, the market's down for, for, no, for no reason at all. So that's something to be, you know, to be mindful of, of those sort of headlines, those narratives that are going to influence investor behavior. So that's one category. And I think to answer your question with respect to you know, what causes major bear markets, I would say that there's definitely typically a role that recessions play. So the way I think about it and, the, and what the history suggests is that all major bear markets are associated with recessions, but not all recessions are associated with bear markets. And going back through the data using the S&P index, which goes back to the late 1920s, actually one third, five out of the past 15 recessions have not had bear markets if we define a bear market as a 20% plus decline in the S&P. So that in and of itself, I think, is is noteworthy that a recession is not necessarily as bearish as people might think. But I would be the first to say that all major bear markets are going to have uh, a recession, uh, you know, a recession in there. So it's a combination of a rolling over of the business cycle with, in terms of the big recessions, with potentially an asset market bubble or a speculative mania or some kind of buildup in margin debt. Margin debt buildup was definitely a feature of the 1920s bull market. It was definitely a feature of the late 90s and even of the, the mid-2000s bull market, which I wouldn't really put in the category of a stock market bubble. That was really a real estate bubble, which caused a financial crisis. 
but we still saw margin debt build up. And I look at margin debt relative to the market. You know, there's a lot of focus on dollar value of margin debt. I think that's misleading. I think you do have to look at it in terms of market, you know, the market cap that's out there. And we really didn't see towards the end of the, the bull market, um, whether you're talking about 2019 or 2021. Uh, a concerning buildup in margin debt. Now, that's just one of many frameworks that I cross-reference, but I have, as you know from my reports, sort of a checklist of indicators, both in terms of the economy and the equity market. And I'm looking for what I would describe as sort of um, uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that you've got an impending recession risk or an impending you know, uh, you know, bear market or market downturn coming. And so do I hear you correctly that across history, major bear markets are normally and very often, perhaps always, I don't know what you said, uh, associated with a recession. So if we do have a bear market, as we do with the S&P 500, it sold off you know, a maximum of 24%. Now it's 20, 21% down. Does that mean that a recession is very likely? That's question number one. Question two, what is your outlook on recession? Everyone seems to think it's, we're already in one. Right. So I'll get to that in a second. But on, on the first part of your question, I would say that it's, you know, it is true that the economy and the stock market are different things. But what I'm watching out for is when they sort of become the same thing in the same direction and you get an economic recession with a major market downturn. To, um, to reiterate, all, ma- all major market declines historically in the U.S. are associated with recessions, with the one exception of the onset of World War II, which was about a 46 percent decline. But there, you know, the market actually bottomed in early 1942, well before the the outcome of the war was was clear. So that's something to keep in mind and potentially relevant to analog today with, you know, the invasion of of Ukraine and just some some concerns about heightened geopolitical risk that we haven't seen for for many decades. So I do want to make that, you know, that caveat when I talk about major market declines being associated with with recessions. And you can get bear markets and certainly some pretty scary bear markets and oftentimes they're in the category of crashes outside of recession. So the crash of, 80, of 1987 would certainly be an example of that. There was a crash in 1946 that I'll probably come back to in reference to today because I think it's a really uh, valuable historical analog to look at. But to the second part of your question on recession risk right now, I am looking at the data and, and for starters, when we talk about recession, when I when I use the word recession, I'm talking about what will be determined as official NBER recessions, and they have a business cycle dating committee that provides the dates for those. So I'm not using a two quarters of negative GDP growth definition, nor does the NBER. So I, based on that data and looking at the data that the business cycle dating committee looks at and looking at the leading indicators, I don't think that the U.S. economy is currently in recession, certainly as of the May data, which we pretty much have now. But if we look at the June data, which we're starting to get, I don't think in hindsight, you know, June 2022 is going to be part of an official U.S. recession. In terms of the outlook over the next six months, let's say for the remainder of 2022, the the risk is elevated. I'd say it's much more than it normally would be in, if you were just to pick any given month of uh, of being an expansion. But I would still say it is not my base case scenario. I would say it's less than a 50% chance that the U.S. economy goes into recession through the remainder of 2022. Next year, obviously, the further out you look, the more uncertainty there is. And there's, I'd say, greater risk, um, somewhat naturally greater risk as you extend that time horizon from six months to 12 months to 18 months. 
And for sure, there will be another U.S. recession at some point. The key question is on timing. But if you remember the, the very scary market correction in Q4 2018, which was just short of 20% on a daily closing basis for the S&P, the narrative at that time was, well, the market moves well ahead of the economic fundamentals and the U.S. economy is going into recession. And what happened is that in 2019, a lot of the data did deteriorate, but it troughed in the middle of 2019. And the the, the global growth cycle and the U.S. growth cycle was reaccelerating higher before we got hit with the exogenous shock of COVID. And so I would refer to that 2019 period as a mid-cycle slowdown. And indeed, the market from that 2018 correction went on to make new all-time highs before the next before the next recession. So I would actually give that one not that it, not that the Fed has control over this, but but you could put that in the camp of a of a of a soft landing for Powell. I mean, the Fed did hike peaking in 2018 and then was cutting in 2019. And that, I think, was would have been looked back on as a soft landing like the mid-90s soft landing that uh, you know, Greenspan is credited with um, if it had not been for the exogenous shock of COVID. So as we look at the data today, I actually still think that the soft landing scenario is probably being underappreciated as a, as a possible outcome here. I think the two things that are really potentially going to push things over the over the edge would be an over tightening of monetary and fiscal policy. But as I noted uh, a couple of weeks ago in my note, I actually think the Fed is pretty close to the end of this tightening cycle. I would not be surprised if the July rate hike is the final one for this cycle. They've got two months between the July meeting and the September meeting. And if you remember how quickly they made the hawkish pivot and they, they just came out and said mission accomplished on maximum employment, that happened pretty quickly. And they've gotten in trouble with forward guidance in the past. And I wouldn't be surprised if they come out in, in August or September and say mission accomplished on the clear and convincing evidence for inflation coming down. If you look at commodity markets, if you look at the national average of, of the gasoline price, which I think is a really critical variable here, um, that's suggesting that we may have, uh, we may be sort of through peak inflation expectations through peak rate hike expectations and through peak uh, actual realized inflation. If you want to look at you know, some of these readings, core PCE year, year over year has come down for the past three months and indeed perhaps through peak Fed hawkishness. And so if we're, if we're sitting here in three months and that is indeed the case and the market's bottoming around these levels, you know, would that be so surprising that the market bottoms when inflation peaks year over year and we're through peak inflation expectations and through peak Fed hawkishness? I think that's a narrative to keep in mind about where we could be. What could the themes be in three to six months from now? Clearly, the sentiment right now is really, really negative. And that's, of course, a good indication to maybe start to think in the other direction about things. That there's so much pessimism in the dominant narratives that it might not take much for the glass to go from half empty to half full. In what way, you said that the uh, forward guidance has gotten the Federal Reserve into trouble. In, in what way do you think it has? Well, for one thing, the average, the, the average inflation targeting regime that they announced, you know, I hmm. think they expected inflation to run a lot lower than it has. And then, of course, as it really accelerated, you know, then it then it sort of becomes a question of well, you're running a, so far above target. Does that mean you're going to try to run below target? The old framework was simply that wherever we are, we're going to on a forward-looking basis target two percent inflation. So if we have a one-off increase in the price level, which 
which is transitory and the and transitory depending on how you define it the loosest definition is something that is that is not permanent so this inflation will be transitory it's just a question of how many months how many years but if if you think about inflation from the demand perspective i look at this primarily as a one, pretty much a one off high marginal propensity to consume fiscal helicopter drop and I think we're seeing that come through in the inflation with a lag. Now, clearly, that's combined with negative exogenous supply shocks. So that's obviously a big part of the picture. But on the demand side, I do see it primarily coming from fiscal policy. And if you look at the money supply growth, M2 year over year, that's now back down to pre-COVID levels. And it's not surprising to me if that's going to show up in inflation with the lag, and that if over the next year we see these inflation readings year over year come down quite sharply. So back to your question about the problems that the Fed has gotten into with forward guidance, the average inflation targeting clearly is one. And then the other one is, is talking too specifically about what they're going to do with rate hikes. The Fed does always emphasize that they're data dependent, but clearly you know, the data did change during the blackout period and they came out with a 75 basis point hike in the June meeting. I think that was heavily influenced by a worse than expected CPI report and in this case, worse than expected, I mean, higher inflation than what was projected by the consensus. Also, the University of Michigan inflation expectations, we saw a breakout there to 3.3%. And then we saw national average gas prices above $5. I think those three things, which, which all kind of happened in the blackout period, contributed to the Fed going 75 instead of 50. And so that's another area where they've gotten into a little bit of trouble with forward guidance. And they should just be focused on data dependency and let's see how the data comes out and not talking too specifically about exactly what they're going to do, you know, two, three months in advance at these meetings. Do you think that the Federal Reserve will continue to hike rates, continue to you know, go on its plan of quantitative tightening if there is no sign of re- recession or, or no sign, of, no clear sign of, you know, an immediate, very sharp uh, fall in business activity and inflation remains stubbornly high because, uh, you know, let, let, let's say that the, the Federal Reserve, they can't print more oil, they can't print more copier, right? So the only thing that they can affect is financial conditions. And if inflation continues to be hot, the Federal Reserve will con- continue to tighten. So what is your outlook on inflation? And then also how far, I mean, I guess you already said, you think that the Fed will do a triple in July this month, and then they would be done. Uh, and under what circumstances do you think that would happen? And uh and yeah, and what, let's get the data dependence into here. Like has the uh, very negative readings of the Atlanta Fed, you know, negative 2.1% annualized quarter over quarter growth. Do you think that will play a role and also in, in, a, in a Fed pivot? It could. I mean, let me just comment on the Atlanta Fed GDP now indicator for a second. So, so yeah, that, that is, um, sh- you know, suggesting currently based on data that Q2 would be negative. We're going to continue to get data. That's going to continue to be revised for Q2. So that was actually updated earlier today and came in a little bit, came more towards towards zero, less negative. Q1, by the way, you know the NBER's business cycle dating committee, like I said, they don't use the two quarters of, of negative GDP growth. They also uh, consider GDI, gross domestic income, and that was actually positive for Q1 and more positive than the GDP reading was negative. So if you average those things out, which the business cycle dating committee does, you know, Q1 was actually positive. 
and that GDP now indicator from the Atlanta Fed is not perfect. Of course, it can have it can be off by two percent based on where the actual reading comes out. So I, I just want to lay those caveats out there on that on that indicator because I know it's gotten a lot of a lot of attention. In terms of but wait, wait, Nick, so sorry. So it, yeah, it has an error, a tracking error of like two point five percent when it's ninety days out, but we're like thirty days out, right? Isn't the tracking error a little bit less than that? If I just if I just run a chart that shows at the end of the quarter where where's the reading and where does the official come out, it's not, you know, you've seen it being off by two percentage points historically. I mean, that data series has only been around since 2013, something like that. So I'm just yeah. saying it's within the range. Of, I mean, and I'm excluding the, the the crazy outliers of of the pandemic, you know, crash and bounce back. So yes. as things normalize a little bit more, I'm just saying it's not um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that that thing is off by by two percentage points. Um, now, yeah, back to the question about, about the Fed and their approach. I mean, the thing is that the Fed used to say, rightly so, that monetary policy acts with long and variable lags. And we haven't really heard that too much, except in the dissent by Esther George, which is somewhat ironic that she's the one dissenting because she has historically been considered one of the really most hawkish people on the FOMC. And she came out in favor of doing 50 basis points instead of 75 at the June meeting and in her statement about why that was the case, she felt like it was unhelpful to have the policy uncertainty, number one. And number two, she did talk about the fact that monetary policy acts with a lag. And so in, this inflation is showing up with a lag, again, I think primarily from fiscal stimulus. And so the idea that the Fed is just going to keep hiking based on you know what's happening with concurrent inflation readings doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not like this July rate hike is really going to affect the July CPI reading. And you know the other thing is that actually the reading that the Fed focuses on most, which is core PCE year over year, has been coming down three consecutive months. Now, CPI, we're going to get a CPI report in the next couple of weeks. That's probably going to be very high because those measures are taken in the middle of the month in the middle of june really had the highest commodity prices highest gas prices so let's not be too surprised with a very high month over month reading on headline cpi perhaps close to one percent you know clearly that annualizes to over ten percent annualizes to to above where the year over year reading is currently but let's just be aware of some of those timing effects of what's happening there and and uh, and and keep that in mind. But like I said, gasoline prices have been coming down since you know since the middle of of June, and that has a big impact. If you chart inflation expectations and the gasoline national average gasoline price, very strong relationship. If you chart the inverse of the gas price to consumer confidence, that's that's a pretty strong relationship. So I think that the Fed does need to be a little bit forward looking and not so dogmatically focused on current. Inflation, but as Powell said, the reason that they are is because of the linkage to inflation expectations. As he rightly said in his press conference, who, who, who the heck knows what core inflation is? I mean, the average person doesn't know, doesn't care. What they know about is what they're paying at, you know, and these gas prices are posted on the highway. Everybody sees them, everybody knows what they are. They're very in your face. So, of course, that impacts the psychology. And they, in their framework, they've been very, very focused on this concern about unanchored inflation expectations. So I think that's what spooked them. But as we see gas prices come down, I think we're going to see those survey-based inflation expectations come down. I think we're going to see infl- their headline inflation itself come down. We're also going to get a jobs report tomorrow. And I think that the key with this jobs report 
And the Fed's been criticized for having this increase in the unemployment rate in their summary of economic projections without a recession. And I think it's really important to note that the unemployment rate going up or the unemployment rate in general is not part of the criteria that the NBER looks at when they define a recession. Total employment is. And so the key is going to be to continue to see on net job gains, both in the establishment survey and in the household survey. So if we get headline non-farm payrolls tomorrow, really anywhere between 100 and 400,000 net gain with an increase in the unemployment rate from 3.6 to 3.7, that's a really positive report. That's the happy medium that the Fed wants to see. That's the soft landing scenario. You actually do want to and see sorry, that. In, in that scenario, up. that's uh, the people going who are out of the labor force going back into the labor force. So even exactly. though the unemployment rate picks up, the total number of people of workers goes up. Too. Exactly. It's two factors. It's the return of the labor force participation rate, which is still below pre-COVID levels, both in terms of the overall as well as prime age. And the other thing is that you have new people, always new entrants coming into the labor force because they're graduating from school and they're and they're getting and they're coming into working age and all of those normal sort of population growth factors. So what you want to see is actually the total labor force growing a little bit faster than total employment, but total employment still growing. So that's expansion for sure, but you are going to see just mathematically a, a rise in the U3 unemployment rate. So if we get that 3.6 to 3.7 in the unemployment rate, accompanied by an increase in the labor force participation rate and positive net job gains, again, you know, I think it's like that kind of 100 to 400,000 net gains is sort of the sweet spot. That's what the Fed's going to want to see. I think that's what's going to be most positive for the economic outlook as well as for the market. Nick, I'm looking at your checklist from June, where you look at a variety of factors, earnings growth, the business cycle, financial conditions, uh, technical factors, margin debt, and, and the like. And you say whether it's neutral, positive, or negative. And in the business cycle, you, you write that it's neutral and or positive. Uh, can you sh- flesh out your thinking? Because you know, you're, you're a professional uh, you know, business cycle analyst. I'm, I'm sort of a uh, on the sidelines, but to me, it looks like, you know, typically the unemployment rate bottoms at the end of the cycle, typically inflation peaks at the end of the cycle. Inflation is likely to peak very soon. And the unemployment rate is likely to bottom very soon. So do you think that this is a end of cycle? It's just that the transition from end of cycle to beginning of cycle is going to be gentle, or do you think we have uh, you know, we're not at end of cycle yet? Well, I'd say that this expansion or this economic recovery is pretty unique given the circumstances that we've been coming from. And of course, in any present situation, you have a constellation of economic data that's not going to be, that you're not going to have a perfect historical analog for. That's always going to be the case. But one of the historical analogs that I think is very helpful is to look at the late 1940s. The highest inflation that the U.S. has experienced in the past 100 years was actually in 1947. CPI year over year peaked at 19.7% in March of 1947. And there was a big decline in the market. I mean, that's a huge inflation spike. And that was based on post-war pent-up demand combined with a reorientation of the supply side away from the wartime economy towards the peacetime consumer-led economy. That's a pretty good analog to the situation that we're in today. And if you look at inflationary spikes that coincided with market declines, which was certainly what happened in that 1946 to 1947 period, what you notice is that the market tends to bottom within a few months, plus or minus, 
of when you hit the peak year-over-year rate of CPI. And so if we are hitting the, the peak year-over-year rate of CPI, that's actually historically consistent with being very close to the bottom in the market. In that situation, there was eventually a recession in the late 40s, starting in late 1948, and the market had not fully recovered to new all-time highs by that point. But I think we have to separate the inflation-related decline from the recession-related decline that occurred in that 1946 to 1949 period. So the inflation-related decline was something like 25 26%, and then the market almost fully recovered that, and then went into this... 19, for, late 1948, early 1949, mild recession. I think it was 11 months long. And that recession-related decline was about 20% in the market. So that took the, the sort of max drawdown to about 29%. So the point is that from the recession lows in the late 40s to those sort of like crash lows of 1946, which were directly associated with that inflationary spike, there wasn't a big difference in price in the S&P 500. And that's, of course, without dividends reinvested. So you could look at that either as a positive or a negative, if it is at all a guideline for the situation that we're in today by saying that, yeah, we could shop sideways here for you know a couple more years, and it might take a few years before the market makes new all-time highs in the S&P. On the other hand, we might not be very far from you know the lows that we see over the next few years in the market. What did the valuations of stocks look like in, in 1947, and, and how do they compare to the valuations now? Because I, I noticed that you note that valuations remain stretched on, on a sort of longer-term basis. Obviously, valuations is not a good timing tool. Right. And this is, and this is a, a perfect example of how the constellation of factors is never going to be perfectly aligned. And it's a good point that you raise, hey, you know, valuations are probably a lot higher today than they were, you know, than they were back then. But yes, valuations are not a good, not a good timing indicator. If you look at sort of near term, you know, the valuations I'd say have been trading pretty closely in line with 10-year yields. Certainly that, you know, Tina effect kind of going away with this big rise in, in yields, I think has been the primary driver. We've seen multiple compression. So we're now sort of on a forward multiple down to more normal levels. I know a lot of people say, well, we should be, you know, overshooting rather than sort of settling into some kind of, you know, average level there. And that's, and that's fair enough. Um, and yes, the bigger picture valuations do remain somewhat, um, you know, elevated as well, you could argue, but they're really not a great timing indicator. And if you look at what people were saying in the late eighties, early nineties, they were making a lot of arguments that you hear today, but historically, these secular bull markets last a lot longer than people think possible. And that happened in the 90s. You know, in the 90s, I think the market kept surprising the upside. In the 60s, the same thing happened with the sort of the go-go nifty 50 stocks. And if you look at generational lows, and I'm kind of taking 1942 and 1974 as generational lows, and you map that to the 2009 low, we're still only sort of a halfway to two-thirds through what very well may be an ongoing secular bull market that behaves much like those markets. And so I would say my base case scenario is that this is a cyclical bear market within an ongoing secular bull market. Of course, that could be wrong, but just looking at the historical, uh, the historical analogs, that would, that would fit. And the, this recession that we may get over the next year or two I would think is going to be quite mild, especially relative to the last two. I mean, the last two were exceptionally deep, the COVID lockdowns and, and the global financial crisis. And that's ingrained in people's minds. But if you look at 
the recession before uh, those two, the two before that, actually, the early 2000s was a pretty mild recession. And the early 90s is probably a better analog and kind of fits with where we might be in this sort of ongoing secular bull market that you had the crash of 87. And a lot of people talked about, including Paul Tudor Jones, that the U.S. economy is going to go into another depression. And Stan Druckenmiller was saying those things in the early 90s. And, you know, you can go back and read what these what these greats were saying at the time. And it was very, very dark. And then the market just went on to, to you know, sort of rip higher for the next 10 years. And that early 90s recession was in part precipitated, I would say, catalyzed by a supply shock to oil prices. There was the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and you had a spike in oil prices and a mild recession somewhat associated with that. We have some something similar with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This oil price spike, actually, since it's pulled back a bit, is not quite consistent with what we what we've seen in terms of supply shock oriented recessions of 73, 79 and 1990. So that's something to keep in mind. So I just would I would caution against valuation as a timing indicator, as you rightly point out. I mean, people have been talking about valuations for 10 years it's very, very difficult to use that as a, as a realistic guideline. Yes, it's something to be aware of, but the, it needs to be part of a bigger mosaic of data that's being looked at. Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com, a leading cryptocurrency trading platform. From spot to futures to options trading and more, Bit.com has it all. So whether you're a seasoned investor or you're new to the game, you need to be on Bit.com. Bit.com has launched a zero-taker-fee option campaign until May 10th. To enroll, email VIP at bit.com. That's bit spelled B-I-T. So email VIP at bit.com and tell them I sent you. Okay, and then tell you tell us also about the global growth backdrop. When we say a recession, I think we're mainly talking about the, the U.S. You, know, you and I are both uh, in the U.S., but then there's also global growth. And you know, I, I'm looking at a chart of the China manufacturing PMI, Japan, US, Germany, and with the exception of China, which is sort of now emerging from a sort of uh, government-induced huge contraction, all the PMIs are going down. So is that generally an attractive time to get into the market, unattractive or or neutral? Yeah, it's in and of itself, it's tough to say too much about that. It's another piece of the puzzle. But as I pointed out in a chart earlier today that I sent out, you know, all 12 of the largest economies in the world have manufacturing PMIs above 50. And anything above 50, as you know, is expansionary, is an expansionary reading. In China, the world's second largest economy is moving higher. And as you say, they're, they're, they actually look like they're re-accelerating. So that should not be, be underestimated, the, you know, the importance of that. And if you look at these mid-cycle slowdowns, and I would again go back to 2019, you actually had, I think, the majority of those manufacturing PMIs globally below 50. So it is not unreasonable to think that those manufacturing PMIs, including the U.S., those manufacturing PMIs can and will go below 50, and that that's perfectly consistent with mid-cycle slowdown. That's perfectly consistent with soft landing. So those decelerated through the the early part of 2019 as the market, as you remember, was moving higher through 2019 off of those correction lows right around Christmas of, of 2018. So it's, it's really not, um, uh, I don't think, a good framework to say, well, these, these PMIs are decelerating. That for sure means uh, recession or that means that the market's going lower. Very important that China's moving higher and back above 50 and moving in the right direction. The other thing is that these, these readings are still in expansionary territory. They have plenty of room over the next few months to continue to decelerate, to trough, and to reaccelerate higher. 
And I think if there's a pivot from the Fed, as I think there will be in the coming months, and as fiscal policy moves from being contractionary to being expansionary again, and as you have this buildup in excess savings that's been accumulated in 2020 and 2021, which clearly was a, a big drop, that's the fiscal helicopter drop that I'm referring to, clearly inflationary, those excess savings are being worked off, but they're a buffer that potentially bridges the gap over the next year through what might otherwise be a recession to what's going to be looked at, looked back on as a soft landing. Now, clearly that could, that could be wrong, but I think that that possibility is something that needs to be seriously um, seriously considered. Right. Now, Nick, there are folks who don't look at the first derivative. So, for example, a PMI above 50 indicates growth. Below 50, it indicates contraction. So a PMI of 50.1 indicates growth. So that's sort of level uh, rate of change one. But then people who look at the rate of change of the rate of change. So a PMI from 65 down to 64, it's still growing. Uh, 64, it's still pretty good. That's very good. But it's the rate of change is itself going down. Now, I'm not definitely not an adherent to this sort of second derivative uh, school of thought necessarily. But what do you think about the PMI that last month was 56 this month is 55 next month is 54 generally it's not the type of environment when you want to own a, a copper mine for example generally it's it's you know one that you want to own more bonds you know would you agree with that or or uh and also do you think that that is applicable to this current situation where pmis are going from 56 to 55 to 54 well a couple of things one is that i think that you can look at economic data releases in three different ways and you can probably write the headline positively or negatively, depending on how you want to look at it. And almost always in the media, that's going to be you know shaded with uh, in a negative context. So to use the PMI example, if you have an expectation of a reading of 55, but it comes out at 54, that's lower than expectations. But if the prior reading was 53, right, that's moving in the right direction, right, in terms of the second that second derivative that you're referring to. But the headline might be manufacturing PMI misses expectations, which sounds like a negative headline. So, and then of course the the third way of looking at it. So, so one way is relative to expectations. The other one is relative to the prior reading. And the third way is just in absolute terms with the framework that anything above fifty is positive and expansionary. Anything below fifty is contractionary. So, to your question on this deceleration, clearly that's been happening. And what I'm saying is that yes, that can continue to happen. But that can continue to happen for three, four, five more months, we can see these readings go below 50 in the US and in the majority of those 12 largest economies and still have that picture for what that's worth if we're just looking at that consistent with soft landing, consistent with mid-cycle slowdown. All of these mid-cycle slowdowns, if you go back to the 10-year expansion that we had coming out of the GFC, I think we had three different dips below 50 on the manufacturing PMI. Those were those were the mid-cycle slowdowns. Then growth re-accelerated. Keep in mind, the natural state of the economy is expansion. And I get the, the adage that expansions don't die of old age. They're killed by the Fed. There is quite a bit of truth to that. But as I said, the Fed, I think, is going to make a dovish pivot here sooner than a lot of people expect. There's going to be time over the next several months for those PMIs probably to continue to decelerate, and many of them go below 50 but as I said, you know, looking at the labor market, leading indicators for the labor market, that still looks pretty strong. That, that doesn't look consistent with going into recession over the next six months. Now, obviously, as data comes in, the forecast always needs to get updated, and you always need to look at things relative to what's happening in the market. You can't look at fundamentals in a vacuum. It always has to be relative to price. 
But that's the way I would I would frame that that question about looking at the PMIs in those in those two different ways. The other thing that I want to mention is that, as I said, China is actually going in the right direction. So it's moving higher and it's and it's above 50. So pretty much everything, any, any way you want to look at that China data with respect to their PMIs, it, it looks pretty good. That's China. That's the world's second largest economy. The Eurozone, if you look at that in aggregate, is basically, I think, probably, probably bigger than uh, China, roughly the same size as China. And Germany, which is the biggest Eurozone economy, they just had an unemployment rate jump. And this comes back to the point that I was making earlier. I looked at the chart for German unemployment, and I thought, well, this movement looks consistent with a German recession historically. But when I looked into it, why is that happening? Why is that unemployment rate going up? It's going up because they have an influx of refugees. So they have an influx of new workers. That's the, that's the return of the, well, you could say the return of the supply side. That would be analogous to if in the US we have the increase in the labor force participation rate. So that's a return of the supply side, which is both pro-growth and disinflationary. So that's what is probably going to take to get out of this with a soft landing. And again, a lot of this is going to be out of the Fed's control. But we do see U.S. oil production continuing to recover. We do see the labor force participation rate continuing to recover. Just anecdotally, I think we all feel like these COVID restrictions are almost completely gone in the U.S. And so if we get a decent return of the supply side and supply bottlenecks, if you look at indicators there, definitely look like they're easing. China looks like it's reaccelerating. So that would all speak to um, really strongly considering the possibility of a soft landing. And you can criticize the Fed all you want. I think the Fed definitely has, has made mistakes. And I wouldn't credit the Fed if we do get a soft landing necessarily. But I think that soft landing mid-cycle slowdown scenario is not quite as uh, being, being sort of probabilistically considered as highly as perhaps it should be by many, uh, many market participants. What if inflation is still high and the Fed doesn't pivot? Will there still be a soft landing? Clearly, this outlook is is, is also data dependent. And as I said, we're going to get a jobs report tomorrow that'll be very important. And we're going to get a CPI report that's that's going to be, I would say, important. But I do think it's it's key to keep in mind that you you have to know that that those mid June readings are going to look bad on headline on headline CPI. So so that I think you can just already price in that that's going to be bad. You're probably going to see a, a further uptick in the year over year rate on headline CPI. The question is, how does the Fed, I mean, if the Fed is only looking at that, yeah, you could say they're going to overstay their welcome in the tightening cycle. But the Fed's prime, really, and there's this framework which is highly theoretical, highly academic about a neutral rate at 250, and they're not quite there. And if they go 75, then they would be you know, upper end of the target range at, at, at neutral. To me, what is the real transmission mechanism to the real economy from Fed policy? It's through mortgage rates. And mortgage rates have moved from under 3% to over 6% on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage in under a year. I mean, that is a dramatic amount of tightening. If you remember what people said about the soft landing in, in the mid-90s Greenspan Fed, it was Greenspan punched the bond market in the nose. Well, I think you could say the Fed has sufficiently punched the mortgage market in the nose here. And that housing data, which is definitely a key feed-through into inflation in terms of owner's equivalent rent, um, comes out with a particularly long lag for economic data. So it's a two-month lag on that case, on those case Schiller numbers. The last reading we have is from April. Month over month was still annualizing to over 20% home price appreciation, which is, I would say, potentially concerning from the Fed's perspective. But if you look at 
anecdotal indicators, as well as the earnings call from, for example, Lennar, who's a home builder, they're pretty clearly indicating mm -hmm. that they're seeing real softening in prices in May and in June. I think that's going to come through in the data. Again, I come back to the point about the uh, the daily average national gasoline price, which we get every day on a real-time basis, that continues to come down and that has a direct impact on inflation expectations, which is one of the things the Fed's really concerned about and focused on. So I think the Fed and the staff at the Fed is going to look at a lot of different indicators and say, hey, you know, we're potentially going to overstay our welcome here. We got to realize that this acts with a lag. We've probably done a sufficient amount of tightening. I mean, mortgage rates, again, it's not so much about where the Fed funds rate overnight is relative to neutral. I think it's about where mortgage rates are. So I think the Fed has done a lot of tightening. And then the Fed gets too much blame for the inflation or too much credit, however you want to describe it. A lot of this is driven by fiscal policy. There's not enough emphasis on fiscal policy. And if you look at year over year uh, M2 money growth, which is really that high multiplier, that high marginal propensity to consume, this was checks in the mail to low income households. In the context of, of, a, of a sort of capped supply side of the economy, not surprising that that's going to be inflationary. But as the supply side heals and as we have those programs run off, which they have done, and the automatic stabilizers have run off as the unemployment rate has dropped very rapidly, fiscal policy in terms of the, the dollar value of these deficits has decreased dramatically. It's actually fiscal policy is tighter than, than where it was pre-COVID. So that is going to definitely have an impact on inflation in addition to what we've seen in terms of the move in mortgage rates from the Fed. You know, Nick, a, a lot of times on this podcast, my guest is pretty bared up and I, I try and talk them down. I say, but what about this? But what about this? But you know, you're, it seems like you're pretty constructive on the market. You're relative for, for, for now, this current market where a lot of people are bearish. You're, you're kind, of a, kind of a bull, cautious bull. So I'm going to play a little devil's advocate with you the other way around and say, what about the inverted yield curve? The you know, 10 to uh, spread yeah. is negative once again, which is typically a, a harbinger of a recession. Uh, the euro dollar curve has, has inverted and that sort of bulge in the curve has been pulled further and further uh, yes. close, uh, so much so that it's, you know, the, the, the pet Fed pivot is now priced in December of 2022. Does when you look at the interest rate market, does that worry you at all? Well, I think this gets back to the question of can the Fed go through a hiking cycle without causing recession? And historically, yes, it can. You know, there there have been these these uh, hiking cycles that have ended in soft landings, is what they're called. In other words, there is not a recession. The mid 90s was one, and I and I would say that the the 2018 tightening cycle followed by the 2019 easing cycle really would have been one had it not been not been for COVID. So it's certainly possible. On the euro dollar futures curve, yes, you correctly point out that the peak in rates has been moving closer and closer to present, and that's typically what happens. And what it, what, what is inevitably the case is on the day of the last hike, the futures curve is pricing the the. the the tightening cycle to, to peak some date in the future. So it's not the expectation that the last hike is the last hike at the present moment. So I went back and looked at the futures curve from December 2018, which turned out to be the, the end of that tightening cycle. And the futures curve was pricing that tightening cycle to go until November of 2019. So it's inevitably the case that these cycles end sooner than the, than the futures market is, um, is pricing. On the yield curve inversion, you certainly can get these uh, sort of head fake inversions that, don't, that are not followed by, by a recession. We have this somewhat unusual situation where we're not getting a consistent uh, picture from the yield curve because obviously the 10-year versus the three-month has not inverted. That is the one that the Fed's most focused on. That is the one that a lot of people think has the most sort of so-called predictive power in terms of recessions. 
And I also think it's important to disaggregate the yield curve into its constituent components and look at what's going on under the hood there. So in terms of recession risk over a sort of imminent time period, next six months, you'd really be looking for an uninversion coming from a state of being inverted and uninverted with yields declining. And so far, we've seen a lot of inversion with yields rising or flattening and then into inversion with yields rising. That's actually consistent with ongoing economic expansion. I remember there were these headlines, and this was just kind of classic clickbait headlines from, I think it was 2017. The yield curve, you know, the headline was the yield curve hasn't been this flat since uh, 2007, you know, but back then it hadn't inverted yet. You know, the correct analog was 2005, not 2007, right? It had to invert and then and also, it's the first time that it's the first time that the two year was above zero in like you know seven so, years. Yeah. So you you, you have years. to you have to take these um, you know some of these negative sounding headlines with, with a grain of salt always, but now we do see yields coming down, and I would say that what we would have to be looking for in terms of not going into recession is one of those so called soft landing you know tightening cycles that don't end you know end up in 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 a recession. And I think if the Fed pivots in the coming months, there's still time for that soft landing. And, and I think fiscal policy is going to naturally ease as well in the coming in the coming months. I have the uh, chart that I showed in recent report that looks at the two-year yield, very good real-time proxy for Fed pivots. Mm-hmm. When we saw that spike in mid in mid-June up to 345, you know, that I think is is a very good indicator that that might have been sort of peak what's priced in for, from sort of Fed hikes and Fed hawkishness. And that's something that, you know, that and the gasoline price I'm looking at every single day um, in terms of trying to get a sense of where, where we're headed from here. Does the Federal, we, we know the Federal Reserve cares more about PCE than it does CPI, much more. Uh, but does it care about month over month data or year over year when it comes to PCE inflation? Well, definitely. Yeah, you, you raise a good point because I, I, I am saying that year over year it's been coming down on PCE, but certainly they want to see month over month and look at, well, how is that annualizing? So, yes, they want to see that coming down. What, you know, the soft landing scenario, the more, op, the more constructive scenario is going to be to see that reading kind of coming back to the three ways of looking at economic data to see that those PC month over month readings coming out lower than expectations, lower than prior and getting ever closer to annualizing at 2%. So, you know, that's, you know, like a 0.17 reading month over month is roughly what annualizes to 2%. And so you want to see, you know, sort of a glide path down towards that kind of level in the, in the month over month, uh, in the month over month readings. So, Nick, the way that you see the business cycle shaping out over the next six or 12 months, does that orient you towards particular sectors? Like, you know, if you think the economy is going to be super hot, let's go into copper miners, let's go into shipping. But if you think it's more of a sort of a secular stagnation period, let's own some Apple, let's let's buy some meta, maybe let's go in the metaverse. So where, where are you on that spectrum in terms of asset allocation? You know, I do think that from the demand perspective, I think we are already seeing disinflation, and the rest of it probably does need to come from the supply side. And on the supply side, so I would say from the demand perspective, we're, we're there or getting there on the disinflation. The supply side, we could see some persistent inflationary pressure. And primarily what I'm thinking about there is that there does seem to be a somewhat uh, medium-term shift in attitudes towards supply chains. You know, You've heard this term of going from just-in-time inventory to just-in-case inventory and having more robust 
global supply lines probably having you know less reliance on Russia and China, uh, more localized. There's this sort of deglobalization trend. If that is genuine, then that's probably all else equal going to be more inflationary than we've seen over the past 30 years. I would agree with the idea that over the past 30 years, this globalization that we've been in since the fall of the Soviet Union and the liberalization of China has been very disinflationary. It's been outright deflationary with respect to durable goods. If you look at the price, you know, the, the level, not the year over year rate of change, but the level of durable goods, that's been a pretty straight line down over the past 30 years until we got to the, um, to the COVID shock. And so if we are going to get these, these supply chains reoriented, that is going to be a multi-year process, and it's probably going to be more inflationary than we've seen in the 2010s. And so all else being equal, you know, you might have higher, um, you know, higher rates. I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, rates are going to have a hard time, in my opinion, being, you know, as high as maybe Bill Dudley's been talking about kind of in the fours. But, but I do think that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not a high bar, but I think the Fed funds rate is probably going to average higher this decade than last decade. And if we are in a somewhat inflationary period or given some of these trends that I've talked about, and also, given the given the tendency of these sort of style trends to last in, in in sort of five to ten year cycles, I would look at U.S. small and mid cap value, particularly relative to U.S. large cap growth, as an area where you know you might want to allocate away from U.S. large cap and towards U.S. small and mid cap as potentially ben- benefiting from that slightly higher inflation, slightly higher um, you know interest rate environment, and some of this kind of onshoring. Um, theme that does does actually seem to be uh, to be genuine and and would be a multi year process. How are you assessing the a- asset universe globally in terms of stocks, credit, bonds? What's what's your outlook on all of these assets, and sort of how does that tie into your business cycle framework? Well, as I said earlier, definitely the Tina effect that was such a big tailwind to stocks through the 2010s is, is less of an impact now. We have seen a pretty pretty decent rise in, in yields. So investment grade yields, for example, are kind of starting to compete with S&P earnings yields. You know, they're the closest they've been since, you know, going back to the period before the financial crisis. In terms of bonds, you know, I think based on what I'm saying about the Fed tightening cycle, whether it's a mid-cycle slowdown or a recession, you know, I think the, the euro dollar futures, you know, first of all, one thing to say is that if you do think we're going into a recession. You have a high conviction on that. I think one of the best ways to potentially express that as a as a as an investment thesis, as an idea, is through the euro dollar futures curve. Yes, they're priced to cut a little bit after the peak. That's what's currently in the in the pricing, and that's like I said, always kind of the case at the end of these tightening cycles. But they're not priced to go to zero, and yet, you know, if you look at what's happened with these uh, easing cycles over the past thirty years, the Fed, you know cuts rates aggressively in a recession. So that's, you know, in terms of from a reward to risk perspective, that sort of two to three year, um, you know, either euro dollar futures, Fed funds futures, obviously less, less liquid, um, or just in treasuries, kind of that two, three, five year um, treasuries, potentially relatively attractive here. If we are going to get a recession, you know, um, being invested in credit is, going to be somewhat risky and probably has further downside, but in a mid-cycle slowdown scenario, um, 
you know, you're probably not far from the highs in terms of the high yield spread. We haven't seen it blow out to the degree to which we which we saw it in terms of mid cycle slowdowns in the 2010. So I think there's more room there potentially on uh, on, on on high yield spreads. And then internationally, it's a it's sort of it's a tough call internationally because, of course, there's a lot of data to suggest that there's better bargains abroad in terms of some of the classic price to earnings, price to book, price to sales of uh, either developed international or emerging markets. And the dollar, which is you know now at 107 on the DXY, it's at valuation levels not seen since really the highs in terms of dollar valuation of 2001. So you would think that, and that's not a good timing indicator, again, valuations aren't, but over the next five to 10 years, there's probably quite a bit of room for the dollar to depreciate versus foreign currencies. And that tends to be a tailwind for emerging markets, tends to be a tailwind for, um, for international stocks, with the one caveat that you know the past 30 years or 40 years of data that we have to look at these things may not be a good historical reference because of this kind of unprecedented peace dividend that we've been in. And if we're reverting to some kind of period that's more like the earlier part of the 20th century, which is a concerning thought generally, then there really is no place like home if home is the United States. If you look at capital markets history over the really long term and the book Triumph of the Optimists, 101 Years of Global Capital Markets is an excellent book on this. The U.S. is just particularly well, uh, well situated in terms of its geography to not have these existential threats that other countries have. I mean, the Russian market, if you were invested in it, that's effectively zero. I mean, you can't access your money. Who knows how that's going to evolve? But the German and Japanese markets were effectively wiped out in the 1940s. So if you do have this sort of existential geopolitical risk out there, that's just something to consider. Now, if things, if that geopolitical tension abates, and globalization mostly sticks around, maybe with some new, you know, kind of or you know, institutions, some new understandings. But it generally kind of persists. Then you would think that there's a lot of deep value to be had out there. But you do want to be aware that country risk is a real thing. That was demonstrated. That's been demonstrated with Russia. And you know, as Warren Buffett has often commented, you know, it's very, very hard to be, you know, investing in the U.S. capital markets. Mm. Nick, you've got a lot of charts uh, that, that you sent me in the deck that people will sh- see on screen that uh, give me a lot of hope. They're, they're sort of you know bullish charts. They make a bullet, bullish point. One of those chart, well, one chart that is not a bullish chart is your chart of the U.S. annual IPO uh, uh, issues, which shows that you know we are well, well, well above uh, more, more companies have gone public in 2021 than they did at the, the peak of the dot-com bubble. And I think if you put a dollar sign on it, it's something like four times as much capital was raised um, during as, as now as during this cycle, during the uh, dot-com bubble. And you know I, I follow the IPO market and the SPAC market somewhat closely in terms of the companies. And it's just they, they don't seem like they uh, make a lot of money. Uh, so what, what is your outlook on that uh, uh, area of the market, the very speculative, the new issues, particularly, Nick, because they were the first to fall and they've fallen steepest. I mean, some, some IPOs and SPACs have yeah. fallen like 95%. Yeah, well, I do think that that was a gen, genuine, uh, you could say, bubble or speculative mania in that segment of the market. And 
in, in my in my report, I include a quote from a book that was written all the way back in 2009 about hard to access beta. And what what tends to happen with these asset classes is that in this case, venture capital and, and you know, young growth companies, pre-IPO growth companies, that people invest in them. They show these great returns over a five to 10 year period. The market sort of adjusts by feeding the market what it wants in terms of providing supply. And so you just get this tidal wave of supply that overwhelms demand. And I think that we finally got to that point in 2021. I ran an analysis in Bloomberg looking at doing an equity screen for free cash flow positive companies versus free cash flow negative companies. That's been a huge, that's really been the key distinction in this, in this market decline. If you're free cash flow negative, which basically means that you rely on capital markets, either venture capital or raising new equity financing in the public markets to survive. That's been the key distinguishing factor. Whereas if you're free cash flow positive, it generally means that you can survive on your own. You don't need, you're not reliant on the capital markets. So that's been a really uh, a really key distinction in terms of performance here. I'm not in the camp that's coming from the perspective that this market in 2021 overall, if we're talking about the Dow or the S&P, was in some kind of major bubble of historic proportions like Jeremy Grantham talks about. I'm, I'm really not in that in that camp. I wouldn't be surprised if this secular bull market ends in a situation like that. Now, again, I have to be agnostic and non-dogmatic and realize that this, 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 this outlook could be, could be wrong. And I respect those, you know, those viewpoints. And I think they're important to take into consideration. But one of the things that I look at with respect to stock market bubbles, historically, if we're talking about, you know, real bubbles is that, and the data goes back really far for both the Dow, further for the Dow than the S&P, so I'll just use the Dow because we get the we get a good example in the 1920s. If you just look at the performance of the Dow, and maybe you can put this up, it, it, if you look at it relative to its 10-year moving average, and just say what percent is the Dow trading above its 10-year moving average? You know, when you come into those crashes, the the dot-com bust and, and the 87 crash actually as well as in the 1929 crash, you know, the Dow was trading well above 100% of its. Uh, in other words, well above double its 10-year moving average. And I think, you know, in this bull market, the highest it got was like 70 or 80 percent. If you look at the S&P, it was about 90 percent above its 10-year moving average. So it was well below that sort of what I would say historical minimum threshold for uh, those major market tops that were followed by major bear markets. And that's true also of the 1989 market in Japan. It was about 120 percent or more above its 10-year moving average on the on the Nikkei. And so now that's not a guarantee, but it's just to say that this market, this bull market that we've been in, has actually not performed as well as a lot of people seem to think it has or suggest it has. It's not at that kind of runaway level that we saw prior to those major bear markets in the past. Mm. Nick, what about earnings? So far, the drawdowns in stocks. If you look at a price to earnings ratio, it's it's just been that multiple because bond yields have gone up, discount rates have gone up, so future cash flows are discounted back at a higher rate. The price goes down, but the earnings estimates are actually still pretty rosy. I think you know earnings estimates somewhere around yeah. six or seven percent growth for the S and P five hundred. Does that make sense to you? Do you think that earnings will continue to grow, uh, or will they stagnate, or even perhaps decline? I think there will be a, a stagnation period in terms of earnings where, where it'll kind of be, if you look at the S&P EPS, it'll probably move sideways and catch up with its 12-month moving average. 
earnings recession is possible. You know, earnings recessions are more common than full-blown economic recessions. But if you look at what happened, if you look at the correlation between the S&P 500 and its trailing 12-month earnings, you know, the correlation is pretty much zero. I mean, it, it's going to, you know, the, the market moves ahead of what happens with earnings. Now, I do agree that so far, it does look like this decline has been mostly multiple contraction, mostly driven by the increase in the discount rate, if, you know, using the 10-year yield as the, as the benchmark for that. But you have to think, and I'm not saying that a recession might not, uh, you know, an imminent recession wouldn't take stocks further down. I think chances are it would, but I don't think the math is as linear as, as people sometimes suggest where they say, okay, we're at 16 on the forward multiple. And you know, you've got that PE ratio, and we're just going to sort of fix that, and then we're going to lower the denominator, and then we're going to calculate some kind of further decline from here. Because clearly, in a recession, the 10-year yield is going to go down, the discount rate is going to go down. Typically, what you see in recessions is that forward PE ratios actually spike because, yes, the denominator moves lower, but the market is not priced based on the next 12 months. It's definitely a long-duration asset class. It's definitely looking out you know, over a five to 10 year period, let's say. So the market then does start to price in earnings recovery further out and probably some catch up growth further out. So there are more cross currents that I think a lot of people, you know, imply when they talk about, oh, the 10 years moved up, you know, to 3% or you know, over 3%. Obviously it's coming back down now. And we're at 16 on the forward multiple. I mean, if we get this adjustment in earnings expectations, you know, we're going to have further decline. There are more moving pieces um, than, than, you know, then, then you, then, then are, uh, then meet the eye on the surface. Mm. What about liquidity? I, I, in the checklist you have, you have a lot of factors that are related to, to liquidity, like, you know, central bank accommodation, but I don't think you list liquidity itself. How do you think about liquidity? And then also, you know, you have a great chart of, I think the S and P 500 against the, uh, central bank balance sheets that's somewhere close to 20 trillion and that is set to go down by you know multiple trillions of dollars uh, like it has not done um, you know since the great financial crisis so do you think that the a, a synchronized quantitative tightening shrinking of balance sheets that uh, this, the likes of which you know we've never really seen is something that is a threat to the market or, or not so much yeah, I do like that aggregate G3 central bank balance sheet versus the S&P 500 chart. So just to review, G3 would be the U.S., the Eurozone, and Japan. So that's the Fed, the ECB, and the BOJ. The Fed, as we know, is in this period of quantitative tightening that you know is going to ramp up in terms of these monthly caps of what they allow to roll off. The ECB, I think it's a question mark as to what's going to happen with the ECB balance sheet. The ECB, which is, you know, the Eurozone in general is a, is a unique framework because you have the ECB, which is the monetary authority. There really is no fiscal authority in the Eurozone. And so the ECB has become the de facto fiscal authority. That goes back to the Draghi 2012 do whatever it takes speech. And they have actually affected that in, in, in practice. And, and that's basically the way it is in the Eurozone is that the ECB is the fiscal authority. They have the willingness and the ability. They have an unlimited balance sheet in euros. So when they talk about inflation versus fragmentation in the eurozone, it is an interesting potential contradiction where they're trying to raise interest rates, but they're trying to contain these spreads. And I think that the way to think about this is that within the eurozone, within the ECB's framework, they're going to raise rates to fight inflation. They don't want spreads to blow out. So they're going to use the interest rate tool on inflation, the balance sheet tool on spreads. And that's sort of wearing the monetary policy hat 
on the one hand and a fiscal policy hat on the other hand. So how that nets out in terms of balance sheet with the ECB, I think is uh, remains to be seen. The Bank of Japan has not moved away from yield curve control. And it's interesting. They may they may stick to that until everybody else goes through a dovish pivot. And who knows? You know, the, the, the Bank of Japan might not actually break that 25 basis point cap on the 10-year yields before the Fed pivots and the ECB pivots. So that remains to be seen. But for the time being, the BOJ balance sheet does continue to expand. It's not at a set pace. It depends on how many JGBs they need to buy to maintain that yield curve control cap. So it's not obvious that that G3 aggregate balance sheet really is going to contract all that much. And even if it does, if you look back historically, you know, the quantitative tightening was a big part of that Q4 2018 correction in the S&P. But the S&P bottomed and started climbing a wall of worry well before quantitative tightening ended from the Fed. So it is not uh, you know, a guarantee or it's not a requirement that you have that ongoing aggregate balance sheet expansion in order to have a, uh, an advance in the, in the broad markets or in the S&P. In terms of liquidity, the Chicago Fed's National uh, Financial uh, financial conditions index, I think, is a good one. That's been trading pretty closely in line with the S and P. It hasn't really been the leading indicator that it was during the GFC period. You know, it was a leading indicator on the downside in the summer of '07. It was a leading indicator on the upside in December of '08. That's more kind of trading in line. But yes, I would say liquidity is um, is a is a big factor in why the market has declined as much as it has. But you know, markets don't bottom on good news. They bottom on terrible liquidity and on dire sentiment. And you have to ask yourself, is that have we gotten enough of that to be potentially through a bottom or very close to a bottom where the market can start to climb the wall of worry on the other side with what you would presume would be on the margin improving liquidity? What do you think, Nick? Because it seems like everyone I talk to is very bearish. Everyone I talk to is, you know, thinks we're, we're in a recession. Uh, does the fact that so many investors, the market is so bearish, is that actually a bullish signal to you in a sort of a contrarian way? Yeah, in my checklist, I have a number of contrarian signals. And yeah, I'm looking for if sentiment's really weak, that's of course a positive in my framework. And so you want to look at what are the dominant narratives to the extent that you can quantify those things. And you can do that with the uncertainty index or the AAII bulls bear survey. A lot of those things look very, very depressed. There is a lot of pessimism out there. And that's why I say it might not take that much for the glass to go from half empty to half full. And it's not a question about what the narratives are today, which is pretty clearly Fed tightening, inflation, the war in Ukraine, the China lockdowns. You know, we're already potentially starting to see some easing of those China lockdowns, some reacceleration of their growth cycle. As I've said, I think we might actually be through uh, peak Fed hawkishness, even if they don't realize it yet. And so in three to six months, you know, the dominant narratives could be very different than what they've been over the past six months. Are you are you very constructive on, on Chinese stocks? Well, one thing I want to point out is that and you can probably put this chart up, is that the China market, the CSI 300 index hasn't made new lows since April. And coming back to the point about the U.S. growth stocks, the IPO index, that hasn't made new lows since May. So when the S&P was making new lows in June, those indexes were making higher lows. That's where the decline started. You might think that that's where the recovery and subsequent advance is going to start as well. So that in terms of sort of internals of the equity market, those two segments, Chinese stocks and US IPO stocks, 
suggests that there might be you know a move higher here for a while now is that going to be a bear market rally is that going to be a sustained advance you know the jury's obviously still out on that one thing i would say is that any any advance off of the lows is going to look indistinguishable from a bear market rally and probably be described as a bear market rally for a long time there will be a lot of disbelief in that new bull market and that's the wall of worry coming back to the sentiment point that is fuel for that bull market to continue now, I'm not really extremely bullish on the market here. As I say, I think there, 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 is, there, there was a needed correction that we were overdue for. I think there's been a multiple reset that's important. Um, we'll see how things you know, develop from here. On China, I guess the one point on that is that I'd say that the sentiment and the pessimism is more likely overdone than underdone if you're looking at what's priced in relative to fundamentals or where the market is relative to sort of the probabilistic paths of, uh, of you know, outcomes in the real economy. On China, it's like I said, it's a, the, the biggest risk with China is the existential country risk. We saw what happened with Russia. There's obviously a concern about Taiwan. If there was an invasion of Taiwan, you know, what do you think is going to happen to Chinese stocks? What do you think is going to happen to the ability of American investors to access liquidity in those in those portfolio holdings, so it's a, it's one that it's a little bit like um, like like a pharmaceutical stock that, that's developing a drug where you don't know what the FDA is going to say about it. It, it could really go um, it can really go either way. It's either going to totally rip higher and, and is fantastic value over the next several years, or it's going to be something that. Perhaps people wish they didn't invest in, depending on what happens. Uh, what happens geopolitically? So that that's that's really, a, I'd say, one that has these these kind of tail outcomes. Okay, so just to thank you, and just to clarify your view on the S and P five hundred, you're you're not bullish. You're just not as bearish as everyone else. <laughs> I don't think it's terribly mispriced relative to the fundamentals, but in general, I would say it's more likely that it's undervalued relative to the fundamentals, undervalued relative to the probabilities of the outcomes in the months ahead. You know, it's not really a time for dogmatic certainty with respect to what's going to happen. I think we're in shades of gray, we're in shades of probability. But given how weak sentiment is, I mean, sentiment is always going to be a good indication of where you want to potentially be positioned in terms of thinking about taking the opposite side of that. Sentiment's extremely negative. You know, this move has already been plus you know twenty percent or more. And if you look at the historical analogs of both recessions and bear markets, there are a lot of good analogs out there that are pretty similar to the current situation, where you're talking about twenty to thirty percent decline. So I think the reward to risk over the next year and over the next five years is much uh, better than it was certainly at the beginning of the year when the market was pretty clearly overdue for a correction. Nick, what is an investment that you are most excited about? You, you, you're most bullish on. I guess it could just be uh, you know risk-adjusted reward or or something that you you think is you know where, what you like the most. I'll sort of go back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier, which is on the euro-dollar futures, and this is something to watch the economic data on. But you know, it's really to me it kind of an interesting anomaly. And if you look at options on euro-dollar futures, oftentimes the pricing is really not suggesting the rate cuts that you would expect to get if indeed the U.S. economy goes into recession. So if you're looking for a hedge against U.S. recession, I would say that, you know, long Eurodollar futures options on plus two year, plus three year Eurodollar futures is something that people can take a look at. Now, this comes with the obvious caveat that this is not investment advice. This is merely food for thought. 
but that's something that um, that I'm keeping an eye on, and uh, you know, investors that are concerned about um, recession risk, um, you know, can consider. That's more in the camp of of what I think as being pretty good reward to risk, but more generally. And I think it's far better. It's a far better trade construction than trying to go short stocks for so many reasons, especially from these levels. Um, if you if you think a recession is going to be bearish for stocks, you know, expressing it through the rates markets, I think is is a far superior way of doing it than trying to uh, trying to you know time the bottom in a, in in a in a bear market, which inevitably is a violent V. Whereas the Fed, if they do cut rates in a recession, which they almost always do, and we'll see if that's back to zero in the next one, we don't know. But they typically cut rates and then they leave them relatively low for a period of many months. So that does give you a long runway to potentially exit a profitable trade in rates rather than try to time that violent bottom on the S&P, either through an outright short or through puts. Right. And then so smart investors like yourself put on these euro dollar trades. They buy the you know March 2023 contracts and then the curve gets inverted because of those positions. And then everyone says, oh, my God, the curve's inverted reset. The bond market is saying recession is coming. Um, Nick, my final question for you would be the opposite. What, what are you least constructive on? What are you saying? Hmm, uh, this is not a great place to put my money. Well, it's hard to say because some of the things that I think might do the worst could also do the best. It's just it's that sort of bifurcated outcome where you, you have these kind of tail risks. And so that's a hard, um, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I don't have a I don't have a great example of that uh, for you off the you know, off the top of my head. Mm, got you. Well, uh, Nick, it's been great having you on Forward Guidance. Um, people can find you on Twitter at Nicholas T. Reese. Where can people find your reports and your, your work if they want to uh, learn more about it? Yeah, they can go to MerkResearch.com, M-E-R-K Research.com. You can follow me on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I look forward to engaging with the audience. Um, I'm always reachable by email as well. Nicholas.Reese, R-E-E-C-E at MerkInvestments.com. Well, Nick, thanks so much. Thank you, Jack. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.